Bonasso. So I think as many of you know, uh, in the retreats that I lead, I tend to keep ritual to a minimum, but what little ritual there is, I like to be filled with meaning. I have nothing against ritual, I just do find that it tends to, um, how do you say, sometimes focus too much on the outside rather than the inside. It doesn't necessarily do that, but it often does. And so the only two rituals that um, they were engaging in at this point is the greeting like this, and one could say, well, that's enough that we're in Asia and this is the common greeting, it's just, it's just courtesy, it's just politeness, and that would be sufficient reason, but not quite sufficient for me. Um, and so when I offer my greeting like this, it is my respect. How do you say? Yeah, respect is a very light word, but deep respect. But bowing to each person, not in terms of your personalities and all of that, but to Buddha nature in each one. So bowing to the essential purity of your own awareness in each one. That's what I'm doing. Okay? So it has nothing to do with hierarchy at all. Simply that, bowing to the, the purity of every, every person's awareness at its ground level. There's that. And then I've, some, somebody told me something I just found hilarious when, when, in terms of response to my snapping fingers. I just enjoy this so much. Um, one person, not knowing the background at all, noticed that whenever I sit, I sit down, I snap my fingers, and then everybody else would sit down as if this was a command. Like, you know, you're like my poodles. Okay, <laughs> sit, stand, roll over, bark, you know. I thought that was really cute. <laughs> it's not a command. But did you notice time and time again, I sit, snap my fingers, and everybody sit down. She said, wow, this guy's really an autocrat. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's, a t that's an entirely different meaning for the uh, snapping of the fingers. It's the one that never in my, in my wildest dreams occurred to me, so I, I just really enjoyed that. But since that's not the meaning, then you should know the meaning. And that is, this is a symbol for me. This is Alan Wallace to Alan Wallace. And, that is, uh, and it's, it's absolutely standard in the Tibetan tradition, which I embrace. And that is when a teacher sits on, this is called the Dharma throne, by the way. Uh, when a teacher sits on the Dharma throne, you snap your fingers to remind yourself, I remind myself, of my own mortality. Dead man talking is the way I like to think of it. Um, but simply, here I am. I'm here to offer the Dharma, to transmit the Dharma as purely as I can. And with the awareness that I certainly shall die, can die at any moment, so in light of that, um, leave off everything else. Just let that scrape away everything else that is not essential and not true to Dharma. Ego, reputation, praise, respect, all that stuff. Within the context of one life, within just with the borders of one life, how much people respect us and blah, blah, blah has some value. But in the face of death, it really has no value at all. Right? And so that's my reminder, is let all of the Dharma teaching from my mouth, as much as I possibly can, let it be of value in the face of death. And so money, wealth, fame, blah, 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 all of that stuff, zero value, absolutely zero. But whatever can be offered that is authentic Dharma with a good motivation, that is truly a benefit, that still has value in the face of death. So it's a, it's a nice reminder. And that's why this is a tradition that's been carried on for hundreds of years, and one I very happily embrace. Okay, that's our ritual. That's it. Hola, so. So now, since we are starting, and very, very deliberately, of course, starting relatively late in the day, I'm assuming that pretty much all of you will have had at least opportunity for one session on your own, in your own rooms. 
And so, and however you start the day, of course, it's entirely up to you. Uh, I, having been practicing in Tibetan Buddhism for more than 40 years, I have a number of daily commitments, uh, sananas that I recite, mantras and so forth and so on, setting motivation. And so that's just a private matter. But what I would encourage is that in your session or sessions before you come here, that one of the things you do, preferably in the very first session, is kind of get your bearings, your navigation chart, set your motivation, set your motivation. That it's as, as meaningful as it can possibly be. Uh, and I leave that to, for you to decide exactly what that entails. Of course, in classic Mahayana teachings, this would be starting the day with refuge and bodhicitta. That's hard, hard to beat that. But whatever you find to be the most meaningful motivation, then I would encourage you to really kind of plant your staff, get your bearings, set your navigation from these sessions before this, so that when we gather, I will assume that you've already set your motivation, so I will not take time out of our very short morning session to focus on that as well, because I'll assume, okay, you've already done that, okay? So this is kind of, this fits within a framework that I find the more I reflect upon it, practice it, teach it, I find more and more useful. And it is a framework of, I've call, called it a Buddhist kind of model of mental health, and I think it is. Uh, and so in speaking of the conative, as in conation, as in desire, aspiration, motivation, intention, all that's built into the, the psychological term conation. And then attention we all know, cognition we know, and then emotion. These are very familiar terms. And so one can speak in, in terms of each of these four, of conative balance, and that is having authentic motivation, but that not having too much desire. That can be obsessive, not too little, that can be apathetic. And having really meaningful desire, aspiration. So that has to do with motivation. And with that grounding, with that setting forth, with that initiation, then getting your mind serviceable. Okay? And that, of course, is through shamatha. What shamatha is all about is making your mind serviceable, specifically in terms of your attention skills. And they're the central themes, as I think you're already familiar are cultivating the sense of relaxation, stability, and clarity. Okay? So attentional. And then on that basis, then we apply our mindfulness, our introspective skills, our attention, our samadhi, and we apply that to really attending closely to the nature of reality in terms of the four applications of mindfulness to get greater and greater cognitive balance. And that is where we're not conflating reality with our projections. We're not going kind of, how do you say, becoming apathetic or distant or, how do you say, disengaged from reality, a kind of cognitive deficit, nor are we distorting our perceptions and other kind of cognitions of reality uh, through, through delusion. And so the cognitive balance, of course, the four applications of mindfulness are just what the doctor ordered. And then out of that, with that kind of that momentum of the cognitive, the attentional, the cognitive, then the emotional balance or affective balance can come quite naturally quite spontaneously, out of the, the momentum of the pre preceding three. But if you'd like to give it a special kind of a turbocharge, a special boost, then the four immeasurables, bodhicitta, is bound to be sheer elixir. Okay? So we can speak of these, four of these four aspects of mental balance, but I think also the word intelligence is really not misused here, or not, yeah, it would be not inappropriate. And so let's, let's just try it on for size, and then we're going to go right to the practice. But cognitive intelligence. Intelligence is one translation for prajna. Sometimes wisdom is a good, good translation, but among the mental factors, when you go into Buddhist psychology, the mental factor of prajna, or shut up in Tibetan, can very well be, I think it's best translated as intelligence. 
So cognitive intelligence. I haven't seen anybody else use that term. I think it actually can be useful. And that is we bring intelligence to our desires, to our aspirations, our motivations, and our intentions. That we become wiser and wiser in terms of choosing what to choose, choosing what to desire, how much to desire, how little to desire, and so forth. And so there's, to me, it's very, very clear that this is a type of intelligence. Sometimes we, we desire foolishly. And, and that gives rise to the old adage, what, be care, be, beware what you, you wish for, beware what you, be careful what you wish for, you may get it. Right? So that would be an indication of, well, look out if you have a foolish desire, and then you get it, you fulfill it, and then you just suffer. Okay? So cognitive intelligence, that's what renunciation, what it is all about. It's bringing all the wisdom we can bear to our aspirations. As His Holiness Dalai Lama said, if you're going to be self-centered, at least be intelligent about it. So that would be just sheer renunciation without bodhicitta, without the four measurables, but at least develop authentic motivation that you're desiring things that really will get to undermining or relieving the causes of suffering and giving rise to greater well-being by cultivating the actual causes of happiness. So cognitive intelligence, I think very useful. And then attentional intelligence, attending wisely with intelligence, relaxation, stability, clarity, that makes really sense, good sense. Cognitive intelligence is almost, well, that's kind of obvious. And then we have, of course, the, the phrase that Dan Goldman has made very famous, and rightfully so, emotional intelligence. And there's a lot of research on this. And so that would be kind of the culmination or the kind of the flowering. And it's very much augmented by, supported, nurtured by the four immeasurables, by bodhicitta, by the whole bodhisattva way of life. So within that framework, I find this very useful. Within, that, within this framework, then I will assume that you've developed your, or cultivated your cognitive intelligence and wisdom before you come here. Our morning sessions will be really primarily focusing on the attentional intelligence, balance, and then as we venture into the rest of the day with the vipassana, the four applications of mindfulness, primarily about cognitive, but you'll just see naturally, without any further additions, just by cultivating kind of the clarity, the groundedness, the discernment, the insights, gleaned from the four applications of mindfulness. This will definitely have an impact on your sense of emotional balance, emotional well-being, and overall sense of genuine happiness. Uh, and of course, we want to augment it just a little bit with the four measurables. Okay? So that's the scoop. So this morning then, we'll go right to, and we'll go a little bit late today, not much, but I wanted to give this little preface, then this will carry through for the rest of the eight weeks. Um, we'll go directly to the shamatha, and the, the mode of shamatha that we're going to start with, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, and I never tire of teaching it, because it's really like the cornerstone of a, of a building. It's often quite symbolic, isn't it? You, you lay the cornerstone, and then you put all the building around it. But this is where we start. This is, there may be an inaugura inauguration ceremony when you lay the cornerstone. Okay, this is going to be where we start. As good as the cornerstone is, this is going to be as good as the rest of the, the building is, right? Well, the cornerstone for shamatha which is the cornerstone for vipassana, which is the cornerstone for developing compassion on the basis of wisdom, all comes right down to relaxation, stability, and vividness. And relax relaxation really does entail centrally learning how, learning the skills of settling your body, your speech and respiration, and your mind in their natural states. It's really a skill. And so let's go for it. Jump right in. And I will use, so you're welcome to be in the, in the sitting position, of course, at any time. 
this, this practice is especially, I would, whether you do it here in the meditation hall or in your room, I'd really encourage you, early on, like today, to try out this practice that I'm about to share with you in the supine position. Okay. Try it. Um, it will serve you well sooner or later. Sooner might be this morning. Later might be this afternoon. Uh, <laughs> it will serve you well, and especially on those occasions should you be injured, should you get ill, should you get old, and on occasion you're just not up to sitting in a very pukka, very posture, you know, really good posture as we see in all of Tankas. Uh, the supine position can serve very well. And also I'll say this as a preface, and that is just through your practice, if sometimes you get some really weird stuff coming up in the body, energy surges, vertigo, uh, just pressure coming up, tingling, vibration, all kinds of crazy stuff coming up in the body, and you're wondering, where is this coming from? Well, these are pranic surges. These are eruptions. It's part of the practice. They are nyam. Unless they're a medical condition, that's a different case. Or if you get some really weird stuff coming up in the mind, if you, if you come to me for advice, probably the first thing I'll tell you is, why not go back to the infirmary? And the infirmary is the practice we're about to do in the supine position. Okay? Total meltdown, total relaxation. It's really an expression of very, very deep trust. Trust not in the Buddha Dharma, although I certainly have that. Trust in the teacher. Well, let the teacher earn it. But trust in something more intimate to you, and that is your own body-mind that you will carry, carry, that you brought with you, and you'll leave, and it will, and it will go with you when you leave. And that is just this trusting in the healing capacity of your own body-mind to restore its own balance, its equilibrium, to heal itself. And what you need to do is get out of the way. Okay. So I won't elaborate on that. I'm eager to get back to the meditation. But that's the infirmary, the practice we're about to do in the supine position, the Shavasana. Uh, it, in many, many cases, I can't say all of them, but in many, many cases, by going into this posture, this total release with primary emphasis on relaxation, you're getting out of the way, and the body really does sort itself out. The energies balance themselves out. The mind comes to, back to a state of equipoise. Uh, and it's not something from my in ingenuity or cleverness or from the Buddhist tradition and so forth, it's really what you brought, the healing capacity of your own body and mind, which I think you can, you can take, take, take deeper and deeper refuge in as you learn to see just how, how extraordinary the ability of your body and mind is to restore its own balance. But we do need to learn how to get out of the way. Okay? That's it. So please find a comfortable position, sitting or supine, your choice. And we'll jump right in.
Let your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground. Attending to those sensations of firmness and solidity where your body is in contact with your chair, your cushion, the floor. And resting your awareness in a witnessing mode, a quiet attentiveness, your closest approximation to bare attention. Attend quietly, non-conceptually to these sensations of the earth element sensations of firmness and solidity, your body in contact with the earth. Let your awareness rise up and fill the whole space of your body, right up to the top of the head, like a fragrance filling a room. Let your awareness fill the space of the body, taking note of the sensations arising on the interior or within the interior as well as on the surfaces. There's no need to visualize the body or to think about it. Simply be aware of the sensations arising within this tactile field. As you are mindfully aware of the sensations arising throughout this field, you may note areas that feel tense, or tight, contracted. Gently focus your, your attention upon these areas as you breathe in. And as you breathe out, surrender your muscles to gravity. As you breathe out, you may feel your shoulders drop, the muscles around the base of the neck softening, loosening up.
Bring your awareness to the face. And soften, loosen the muscles around the mouth, the chin. the jaws, the temples, bring your awareness to the forehead, let it feel open, spacious, relaxed. Let there be an openness between the eyebrows. Soften all of the muscles around the eye. Finally, soften the eyes themselves so that your whole face feels relaxed, soft, loose. And this way, settle your, <coughs> your body in a posture of ease and comfort. And insofar as you do indeed feel relaxed and comfortable, you should find it easy to let your body remain still with no unnecessary movement, just the movement of the breath. If you're in the supine position, then your body be sh should be fully relaxed. But still, psychologically, you can adopt a stance, an attitude, a posture of vigilance. This is a formal meditative posture to be used only for practice. And if you're sitting upright, then let your spine be straight. Lightly lift your sternum or your chest so you're sitting very much at attention. Keep your abdominal muscles loose and relaxed. So that as you breathe in, the sensations of the breath go right down to the belly, which expands as you inhale falls back as you exhale. 
this way settle your body in its natural state, imbued with the qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance. Settling your speech in its natural state is quite straightforward, not difficult. simply means to rest silently, in effortless silence, the silence of a guitar with its strings cut. But together with settling the speech in its natural state, we settle the respiration in its natural rhythm. This is crucially important. In short, this involves breathing effortlessly, without forcefully drawing the air in as you inhale or forcefully expelling it as you exhale. Allow the breath to flow in and out effortlessly and without constraint. The key is the outbreath. With every outbreath, relax more and more deeply in the body, <clears throat> releasing muscular tension, tightness, stress. With every outbreath, simply release the breath without holding it back or forcefully expelling it. <clears throat> and with every outbreath, simply release any thoughts, memories, images that may have come to mind, <clears throat> as if the outbreath were a gentle gust of breeze blowing away dry leaves. With every outbreath, as if with a sigh of relief, just let go of any thoughts that may have come to mind and return your awareness to a non conceptual flow of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
The key to the outbreath is the very end of the outbreath. Each time, be mindful as you approach the end of the exhalation and see that you release fully without expelling the breath. Simply don't hold any back. Release it fully. Release and release. Until the next breath flows in effortlessly, like a wave washing up on shore. Just to let it flow in. Whether that in-breath is short or long, deep or shallow, whether the cycle of the respiration is rhythmic or arrhythmic, let your body breathe without intervention, without regulation, without control. Allow your body to, to reestablish its own equilibrium its own balance energetically by way of the breath. In this way, settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, which is bound to shift, to change, as your body sorts itself out and finds its own equilibrium. And finally, set your mind at ease by releasing all concerns, all hopes and fears about the future and the past. For the brief duration of this session, set those all aside. Let your mind be carefree, untroubled by what has gone by and what is yet to come.
this way, allow your awareness to come to rest in stillness, hovering motionlessly in the present moment. Awareness is by nature luminous. It's clear, it's bright. So let the natural luminosity of your own awareness illuminate the field of the body, attending especially to those sensations associated with the in and out breath. Relaxing deeply with every out breath. Settle your mind in its natural state, imbued with the qualities of relaxation, stillness, and clarity. In this phase of mindfulness of breathing, the challenge is to balance an ever-deepening sense of relaxation, of looseness, of ease, without losing the degree of clarity 
with which you began the session. So let's practice as much as we can until we gather again at 4.30. Uh, this, by the way, is one of my, uh, my gimmicks, my techniques for overcoming jet lag, especially in the supine position. Very helpful. Just let the whole system kind of mellow out. But do recall this one, really the quintessence of this, is the balance of relaxing more and more deeply. And now we know from our own habituation that when we relax very, very deeply, the overwhelming habit is to get duller and duller and duller and fall asleep. And there's no problem with that. That's called taking a nap or falling asleep. Um, and it's known scientifically. There's an enormous amount of data that is when people start really focusing, focusing attention on anything, when people focus, there tends to be a contraction, a tightening up, an exertion of effort. And after a while, it just, you, make it, you get tireder and tireder by just ongoing effort. And so what we're trying to do here is cultivate a new type of habit which we're not born with. It doesn't come naturally. But it's incredibly important. Right? And that is to learn deliberately how to relax more and more deeply. The out-breath is a really good occasion for that. Releasing, releasing, and releasing. And doing nothing more than relaxing more and more deeply without losing the clarity with, you, with which you began. You may be eager to start developing some stability and continuity, and cracking the whip and you know, developing some samadhi and enhancing vividness. All that has its place, but not yet. Not yet. Okay. So the first thing is just learn to mellow out. I think this has always been true, but in the 21st century, I would say in all of recorded history of humanity, it's never been more important, given just the pace of life and everything you already know about modernity. 
So to unwind, to relax, to just mellow out, and yet not mellow out into sluggishness, into dullness, but maintaining the clarity you have right now. That's sufficient. All right? And on that basis, then we can slowly start developing stability. On that basis, start developing clarity and move along the path of shamatha. But the first thing is this. And the breathing, the flow of the breathing, that you allow it to flow unimpededly, effortlessly, and you do it not only when you're on your meditation cushion, but when you're walking, when you're sitting, and so forth, that you just get into the habit of allowing the breath to flow unimpededly, effortlessly. And I'll give you one little little uh, trial, quite interesting. And that is, I assume that for the next couple of days, you'll be wanting to do, uh, do email, let your loved ones, relatives, and so forth know that you're here, you seem to be safe. Um, hopefully all is well, but whatever it is, you're sharing your own private correspondence. Um, but quite interesting little th- thing is when you're doing your email, checking your email, responding to email, check your, re- check your respiration. I, this really came to my m- mind, I saw on, on YouTube or something, some Stanford professor calling, had about 400 people in the audience, and he invited them right off the bat, everybody check your email right now. Out come all these iPhones and iPads and everybody like that. You know, they finally had permission. And then he said, now check. For the last minute or two, how is your breathing? And I think in a great number of cases, when people are really focusing there, reading their email, responding to email, they're holding the breath, or at least inhibiting the breath, the, the natural flow of the breath, which is like eating. You need to do it on a regular basis, or sleeping, do it on a regular basis. On a moment-to-moment basis, your body needs oxygen. Not once or th- two or three times a day, it needs it all the time. So if you're breaking up that flow with a contraction of while you're doing your email and so forth, or scoping out the internet, whatever, you know that can't be healthy, right? So it's just a nice little trial to, to observe yourself. Are you still maintaining that quality of relaxation, Easy in, easy out, as you're clicking away. Okay? So on the, on the issue of email, this is a really brief footnote. Um, next, today, tomorrow, do whatever you want. You know. When we go into Monday, we go into silence. Then, again, nobody's going to be policing this. This is just not a, a police kind of place. Uh, but I will tell you that insofar as you're involved in email and get, getting caught up in other people's dramas, Loved ones, friends, and all of that, with their lives, which are not lives focused single-pointedly in practice, almost certainly. They're not living in a retreat center. They're out there in the world. All of their hopes, their fears, their mundane concerns, their ups and downs, and so forth. If you're engaging with them, I can pretty much guarantee you that will be like just throwing sand in your meditation practice or in your carburetor, whatever you like. It's not going to help. It's going to give you so much fodder, so much food for more cogitation, more rumination, more obsessive, compulsive, delusional disorder, um, that what I would encourage, and and this is simply for your benefit, keep your email to a real minimum. Minimum means if your loved ones start being concerned for you, are are you doing okay? I haven't heard from you for a week, for two weeks. Are you okay? We're starting to get nervous here. Who is this California guy running a a cult in this (laughs) tropical paradise? You know, so clearly you want to assure them. Um, and again, nobody's going to be monitoring this at all. On Monday, they're going to shut off the, um, I'm quite sure they're going to shut off the internet, the wireless. I, think, I presume it's going now. So that, but there will be that computer right in the center of the library for anybody to use at any time. Again, nobody's monitoring, nobody, again, it's the kind of thing, nobody cares. I care very much that you have the same thing. I'll be monotonous, uh, that you get as much benefit as possible. 
but nobody's going to be monitoring how much time you spend on the internet or on email. But I will say, just overall, the less time you can spend on that, the easier it will be for you to really collect your attention in shamatha and apply your meditation skills in the practice of vipassana. So that's what I would say. Yeah. So, and that goes also for a phoning home, for Skyping. Sometimes it's just necessary. And it's everybody's call. When is it necessary? When is that an act of loving kindness and compassion? To really, you know, somebody really needs to hear from you. Or it could be business. It can happen. Something comes up in your business life, your professional life. You simply have to do it. It's your call. Your call. Nobody's going to ask. Nobody's monitoring. But the less you are, are phoning, emailing, Skyping, and all of that, I think the, the greater the composure, the unification, the collectiveness of your time here, which means more benefit. That's that. Very simple. Okay, good. Enjoy your day. And I'll look forward to seeing you at, again, lunch we'll be talking. And I'll, we'll all be convening, of course, at 4.30. Until then. <laughs>